The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Good morning again, Grace Family Church. Uh, As Sean said, we return today to our series, Preaching Through the Eventful Book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts, I think, at least until the Sunday before Christmas. Still tweaking a few things, figuring out. But today we resume our story in chapter 6. So please make your way there in your journals or Bible. I was thinking about the fact that stories shape us. Stories shape our ambitions, our aspirations, our concerns, our prayers. They cause us to warm to some things and to be wary of some other things. One of the reasons that this book of Acts is so valuable for us as believers is that we are a part of the same story as those we're reading about. Just like them, we are followers of Jesus who have received his spirit called to pursue life and mission in a local church in the time between our Lord's ascension and his glorious return. So this story helps us to understand who we are. Our passage this morning is quite short. It's only seven verses. Next week, that will not be the case at all. God willing, we'll tackle the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 in one go. So please pray for me. This week, I was actually able to read all of my different commentaries to go through everything, Uh, next week is going to be much heavier lifting. But the the few verses we're going to focus on this week are rich fare. They help us to see the character of leadership and the character of followership that serves a local church. As we as a young and growing church face the challenges that will come with growth, these verses point to the need for wisdom, the importance of maintaining right priorities, and the grace of God that keeps his church growing. So let's read Acts chapter 6 from verses 1 to 7. This is the word of the Lord. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great number, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Have any of you heard of Osgood Slatter disease. Yes, I see some of the doctors and some other people nodding. That's good, a few people. You might not be familiar with it, though, or at least not by that name. It's one type of growing pains that kids and teens can suffer while they are going through their growth spurts in early adolescence, particularly if they're involved in sports that require a lot of running and jumping. 
they experience pain and sometimes swelling just below their knees because bones and muscles and tendons grow at different rates. Thankfully, Osgood-Slater disease usually goes away by itself in the later teen years once the bones stop growing. So for us older ones, you cannot legitimately blame Osgood and Slater for those knee pains. Those are not growing pains. Those are aging pains. And they go by other names. Now, in the, in the New Testament, the church is often compared to a body. And just like our bodies, churches can go through growth spurts in which all the parts do not grow at the same rate. And this will cause problems and pain. Luke tells us about a season of significant numerical growth during which problems emerged in that church's daily efforts to care for widows among them. But unlike growing pains in our bodies, this situation would not resolve itself. It required the attention of leaders, and they had to be careful not to create bigger problems while seeking to address the presenting issue. The particulars of the situation Luke describes has, has next to no correspondence to our daily life in Grace Family Church. Yet we can learn much as a community from this church and their, and their leaders as they navigated this challenge. Churches are called to many things which are genuine entailments of the gospel. But what should church leaders prioritize? And how can we attend to the needs which emerge in a growing community without endangering our priorities? And what role does the whole community play in all of this? The story tells us how the apostles gave attention to an urgent need without compromising their priorities. The solution involved the whole community in identifying and deploying godly leaders to serve in new ways. And the way Luke tells this story helps us to see that addressing this problem was critical to the continued growth and witness of the church as God caused his word to spread among the people in Jerusalem. Though we must do so with care, I'm convinced that we can apply lessons directly from this passage to our local church. As our church grows, we must protect biblical priorities by deploying godly leaders to meet growing needs. As this church grows, we need to protect biblical priorities by deploying godly leaders to meet growing needs. Our little church is growing slowly but steadily. We recently and joyfully added another cohort of members to our family. You know, every time we do this, the complexity of caring for everyone multiplies. This passage helps us to recognize that having more to do can be a threat to what we must do as pastors. It helps us to remember what must come first by underlining the priorities that leaders must maintain. And it shows how the whole body is meant to respond to emerging needs guided by biblical priorities, but working together, sorry, sorry, by working together with leaders to choose others to help carry important burdens. So it describes the work that we will have an increasing need to do together as leaders and followers. As our church grows, we must protect biblical priorities by deploying godly leaders to meet growing needs. So let's look carefully at this text. I've broken it up into three episodes and an epilogue. So I've given each a descriptive heading. Episode 1, a complaint arose. Episode 2, the solution proposed. Episode 3, those they chose. And finally, the epilogue, which will be much shorter, continued growth. Now, I want to give you a fair warning. As usual, I set out to structure this message in sections of approximately the same length. But as I wrote, 
there was clearly a lot that I, I needed to say on the episode two. So this is like those series you watch these days where you look at it and you realize, oh, but that episode is only 20 minutes, and then that episode is like 40 minutes. How are they doing that? You know, so, but I'm glad they're doing that because it gives me some justification in having a long episode two. But fear not, this sermon won't be any longer than normal. I just don't want you to get tired in the middle of episode two wondering when it's going to end. So let's look at episode one. A complaint arose. When Luke starts out saying, in those days, in these days, he's locating this story in the situations and conditions he described mainly in chapter 5. You can kind of scan back in chapter 5 in your journals if you have them there. These are the highlights. In those days, God was working powerful miracles by the hands of the apostles. The external pressure on this church was intensifying. The Jewish leadership had arrested, threatened, and beaten the apostles. And that beating was not a slap on the wrist. It was brutal enough to serve its purpose as a deterrent. Yet it didn't deter the apostles. The other mark of those days was what Luke says at the very end of chapter 5 in verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's a more fulsome picture of those days. Now, imagine it from a leadership standpoint. The apostles are kind of trying to cradle a full load with public ministry to the people of Jerusalem, pulpit and private teaching to their growing congregation, all while facing pressure and persecution from enemies outside. Now added to that is this internal issue that arose. I mean, leadership is hard. What you also need to remember is that in those days... In their situation, mercy ministry was central to their newfound faith. They were doing such a tremendous job of caring for each other that Luke could say in chapter 4, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. The generosity of those who had means, who sold land and houses and possessions to distribute the proceeds was a blessing to the poor among them and a testimony to those around them. What we see in chapters 4 and 5 is that the apostles had administrative oversight over this benevolence. They received the monetary gifts and they ensured that it was distributed as needed. This massive mercy machine had matured into a system of daily distribution of food to the most vulnerable members of their community, the widows. But the machine that was initially running so smoothly started making a loud noise because something was broken. How should we understand who was involved and what was happening? Are there some undercurrents here that we need to be reading into? The scholar David Peterson is helpfully measured in explaining the scene. He says this, The Hellenistic Jews in 6-1 would have been Greek-speaking Jews from the dispersion or their descendants who lived in and around Jerusalem and attended synagogues where Greek was spoken. Those who had come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah had joined the church where they were in close fellowship with Christian Hebraic Jews. It cannot be assumed that there was a doctrinal rift between the Hellenists and the Hebrews, but language and culture are closely linked. And it is likely that these two groups brought differences of outlook and attitude with them into the community of Christian disciples. Old prejudices and resentments may have reasserted themselves or appeared to have been an issue when practical problems relating to the care of widows became obvious. Now, this growing pain was not merely a gross. It was a threat to the well-being and witness of this church. 
In the Old Testament, the righteousness of a community was measured by their care for the most vulnerable. This issue called their love and their unity into question, since one particular group was not consistently benefiting from care. And it was an urgent concern. Eckhard Schnabel underlines the seriousness of the situation. These Greek-speaking widows probably had no relatives in Palestine, and thus no provisions except for assistance by the church. See, they were distributing food daily. I mean, these were not gift baskets given to express appreciation to stalwart older women in the church. The breakdown meant that some of the most vulnerable were going hungry. There are two things I want you to see in this first verse. Luke's honesty about internal problems in the early church, problems that reflected badly on the apostles' leadership, speaks to his trustworthiness and the trustworthiness of the Bible. Acts is not propaganda for the Christian establishment. Luke isn't saying, join the church, it's great. You know, that's not what he's doing here. He chose to tell particular stories from those days. He, he's honest about the threat of internal corruption in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, and unintended neglect in this case. Earlier this year, I watched the HBO series Chernobyl, based on the nuclear disaster that took place in 1986 under the Soviet administration in, in Ukraine. It was easily one of the best TV series I've ever watched, and I'd recommend it, but guardedly because of language and some of the squeamish aspects of the realism of the portrayal. The story that led to the Chernobyl disaster, which comes out in this series, is a great illustration of the fact that when leaders want to make a project look good, when they want to make their administration look good, they cover up problems and paint a pretty picture, even when everything is melting down from the inside. Here in Jamaica, we know that often enough, our leaders in various institutions cover up the truth of situations so that they don't look bad. Luke does not do that. And we shouldn't do that as Christian leaders. We come to Christ and we invite others to him because he is true, not because the church is perfect. So here's the second thing. A growing church will have growing pains. A growing church will have growing pains. It comes with the territory. Different parts of the musculoskeletal system that keep us working won't naturally grow at the same rate. Do not be discouraged by that and do not be silent about it. Don't be discouraged when gaps appear in our ability to care for everyone. That's not a church failing. That's a church growing. And please do not be silent. These things do not resolve themselves. They actually require the attention of leaders. As leaders, we need your eyes and your input. And we want to hear your voice even when you are complaining. See, you're going to see things and experience things in our community that we will not. We need you to bring them to our attention, even though you look on and you say, boy, those guys' hands are full. Help us to love well and to lead well by bringing concerns to us. So what we see in this text is that because some people raised the issue, the leaders could respond to it. That's what's going to play out in verses 2 to 4. So let's look at the solution proposed. If I'm not mistaken, verse 2 of this chapter is the second recorded members meeting in the book of Acts. There was one back in chapter 4 that basically ended up being a prayer meeting. The apostles called everyone together to address the issue. So it, what it shows is that they understood the seriousness and the urgency of the matter and they responded appropriately. They recognized that this particular issue, though, though it was being felt by a minority, 
ought to be everyone's concern since it was about their unity and, and care for one another. Verse 3 helps us to see the character of the community and how the apostles understood their relationship with the rest of the disciples. Sometimes we read and miss words like this, but notice that they address the gathering as brothers, really brothers and sisters, because the Greek word used there often covers both and often should be translated that way in the New Testament. The leaders saw this whole diverse congregation, no matter their social standing, age, or first language, as their brothers and sisters. So this was not a business meeting being held by a volunteer club, but a family meeting to address family matters. And the fact that everyone saw it that way was evidenced in both their presence and their participation. If you jump ahead to verse 5, you'll see that everyone gladly received the proposed solution and participated in the process of choosing new leaders. What we have in front of us in these details is a picture of a healthy church family. So I'm going to say a few things about a healthy church family as we walk through this episode and the next. So here's the first one. For a church to be healthy, leaders must take initiative and followers must take ownership. For a church to be healthy, leaders must take initiative and followers must take ownership. The apostles take responsibility for the problem. Surely they were not hands-on in the daily distribution, but they didn't point fingers at anyone else or throw anybody under the bus. And they led the way, you know, they led the way so that everyone was encouraged to take ownership. They publicly acknowledged the problem and underlined their priority. They were already rightly occupied with preaching God's word. The very real need to ensure that all the widows were being properly cared for raised a very real danger that they, the leaders, could become absorbed in finding and implementing a solution by themselves. They didn't hide this concern from everyone, but expressed it so that everyone had the opportunity to understand and to share their concern. Still, the problem of Greek-speaking widows not being cared for needed to be addressed. So after underlining their priorities, the apostles proposed a solution. They empowered the church to pick a group of leaders whom the apostles would appoint to take on the responsibility, having set parameters for the sort of people that the role demanded. And all the disciples were satisfied with this proposal and got to work selecting the seven. For church to be healthy, leaders must take initiative and followers must take ownership. One of the reasons as we have built this local church that we've been so insistent on uh, building relationships based on covenant commitment rather than casual or occasional engagement or these kind of undefined relationships. You know, Facebook brought in that status. It's complicated, you know. Yeah, w one of the reasons we've built with covenant commitment is that covenant commitment is more likely to lead to ownership than any other configuration. But notice I say more likely. Making vows does not guarantee that we follow through on our commitments. Members, I want to say to you, we need your voices and we need your ownership. We count it a privilege to be both your leaders and your brothers. We want to lead in a way that empowers everyone in this family to participate in caring for the growing needs among us. Now, as I reflected on this, I realized, okay, there's some weaknesses we as elders need to address. I think we can communicate a lot better, and I think we can com communicate more consistently. Now, I know that I can be a bottleneck sometimes. Sometimes as leaders, we are more skilled at doing than delegating. 
But this church is going to be less than it can be if we as, if we as leaders are only able to do. I had a, 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 I think a landmark experience uh, a few months ago after I was diagnosed with a hernia. Because it meant that I couldn't lift anything heavier than 15 pounds. So I remember going to uh, mail pack to get the shipment of Axe Journals. And I look at the box and I'm like, nah, that's not happening. So I have to humble myself now. You know, I, I look like I can carry things, of course, so people expect that I will. And I had to say to one of the guys, hey, can you bring that to my car for me? Because I can't lift that right now. And of course, he was willing and he does so. And, you know, as I'm walking out, I'm thinking to myself, boy, God, this is hard. I, you know, I, I, I'm wrestling with how this feels to not be able to do all of these things that I could do. And I felt in that moment like God just kind of tapped me on the shoulder and he said to me, do you realize you do things because you can? And you need to learn to do. That's not a good way of making decisions about what you do. You need to learn what you should be doing. And I kind of stand there by the car and I'm saying, did you really just do that to me? Seriously? I mean, but I was grateful for just that clear sense of the Lord just taking the situation and showing me my own heart. And I'll confess, I have been a leader in this church, and I do a lot of things because I can. And it's hard sometimes to ask for help, because people aren't necessarily moving at the pace I'm moving at. And I think I could get it done. You know, sometimes even with Sam, Sam will say, I'll take that from you. But I'll I'll sit there, and I'm kind of antsy, and I'm waiting, and she's not taking it. I'm thinking, okay, should I leave that with her, or should I just grab that and get it done? Yes, I'm confessing. Pray for me as I pray for myself in Jesus' name. (laughs) But yeah, we need to recognize that to be skilled in doing and not to grow in our skills in delegating will hold this church back. So please hold us accountable to that. At the same time, I want to publicly acknowledge that so many of you, our members, are doing a tremendous job of owning this community. Thank you for sharing suggestions and bringing needs to our attention. There are things that have become a part of our culture, a part of our regular rhythm of gathering, um, as well as events that we have from time to time that are executed with little or no hands-on work from us as pastors. The things that we do that we did not come up with, that other people said, hey, I think this will serve, and we're able to implement that. Further, in the last year and a bit, we've been served by administrative leaders for several areas of service who have owned ministries including Grace Kids, Ushering, Sound and Visuals, the Worship Team, Grace Groups. Thank you, guys. Also, Kristen has been working side-by-side with me on a part-time basis as as an administrator. Chris, I'm really grateful. I don't know where you are, but I'm really grateful. She's Oh, she's there. Okay, all right. Thanks, guys. I see you're listening. Great. (laughs) We are pastors, and I can speak on behalf of our wives, too. We have felt the difference of your stepping up and taking those responsibilities. There are definitely ways when we look at how we're functioning overall that we can grow in serving one another. But we are glad that, that so many of you have taken things that we needed to hand off and you're wrestling other things from us when we've been slow and we're holding on to them for too long. So thank you guys for serving in that way. There's a clarifying and critical truth that comes out in these verses. Notice that the solution the apostles propose ensured the protection of their priorities as leaders. No, the way that this is recorded in the passage can strike us as dismissive and demeaning. Look again at the second half of verse 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. You almost want to hear it with an English accent, you know. It sounds even worse in some other modern translations which say to wait on tables. 
Doesn't that sound like they're kind of standing on their pulpits and looking down on the task of caring for widows? But the ESV's use of serve should help us. In the Bible, serving is esteemed. The original Greek text helps us to see that the apostles were not making a contrast between the spiritual work of preaching and the social work of distributing food, and therefore privileging one over the other. The text uses the same word in speaking of the daily distribution, in verse 1, and the ministry of the word. Literally, it says the daily service and the service of the word. And the same root is used here where it says serve tables. Therefore, what they represent then is two different types of ministry to which God calls people. The apostles needed to know which type of ministry was to be their priority. Now, if you ask people around you in Jamaica who are outside of the church what the church needs to be doing, their answer would be social work. I mean, I've heard it in the Vox Pops. They're very glad for us to take care of our own and to serve the felt needs of the community around us. But they don't actually see much value in giving our time and attention to the ministry of the word. I mean, too much talk and not enough action. But we cannot afford to be shaped in our sense of priorities by the needs that are most acutely felt by people. For a church to be healthy, leaders must prioritize the ministry of the word and prayer. We see that conviction illustrated in this text. So look at the text as I walk through. Firstly, the growth of the church that we see right at the end of chapter 5 uh, and the start of chapter 6 came in the context of unceasing teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ by the apostles both in the temple and from house to house. Secondly, when the apostles propose a solution to caring for all the widows, it's bookended by the priority of preaching in both verse 2 and verse 4. So look at verse 4 for a second. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now look down at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So thirdly, surely Luke wants us to see that this continued growth, or, or to see this continued growth as the effect of the apostles prioritizing prayer and preaching. They say... It wouldn't be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That word right can also be translated pleasing, meaning it would not be pleasing to us. And ultimately, it would not be pleasing to God for us to focus our efforts on that ministry instead of this one. But why not? Think about what we've learned in Acts so far about these apostles. Testifying to the risen Christ was the responsibility that Jesus had specifically positioned them and equipped them for and entrusted to them. I mean, think about their criteria for selecting Judas' replacement. This person had to have been with them from the very beginning. In other words, the qualification was being an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry, to his death, to his resurrection, and, and now to his ascension. So therefore, other important things must be done by others. They were not dissing the widows. They were thoughtfully handing over this important task to other leaders who are well qualified to serve in that capacity. Now, we can't always say this, but what's true here of the apostles is true of every pastor who is called to care for the church of God, no matter their context or church. I know that's a bold claim, but I'm convinced that, one of, one, that that is one of the central truths that Luke means for his readers to grasp. Think of the story of Acts so far. The New Testament church was birthed by the preaching of the word. The church was growing through the faithful proclamation of the word. 
In this story, the protection of the priority of the ministry of the word is critical for the continued growth of the church. And this priority is what's borne out in the New Testament letters. Pastors must be men of exemplary Christian character. Yet the only qualification for pastors and elders and overseers as compared to what every Christian is called to is that he must be able to teach. Now, there are many well-known passages where this can be seen, but for the sake of time, I'll point you to only one. This is Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The comment on this verse in the ESV Study Bible simply and elegantly underscores the point that runs through the warp and woof of the epistles. The primary role of leaders is to preach and teach God's word, and their lives should reflect the word that is taught. For church to be healthy, pastors must prioritize the ministry of the word and prayer. Now, I don't mean to neglect that emphasis on prayer. Uh, Bruce Milner's comment helps us to feel the weight of the importance of prayer and, it's, and, and to understand this sudden mention in verse 4. He says, prayer and the word are inseparable. The prayer ministry is simply non-negotiable. It is this which allows God to preside over our church. When he is waited upon, sought, and depended upon, he will speak his word with power, and the congregation will be spiritually prepared to hear and respond to it. One initiative that we've brought back in the last few months, again, that has not been us as pastors, is just a few minutes of prayer before the service with whoever is here. And I think it's such a tremendous thing. You know, We cannot assume that God is just going to graciously move among us. He has called us to pray that he would do such things. And part of the purpose of that prayer is so that our hearts are engaged with his purposes. And we don't just kind of come in and plop ourselves down and say, what do you have for me? But we come hungry and prepared to listen as if God is speaking to us uh, through the preached word. No, I'm very aware, and I, I, think, I think I was convicted about this again as I prepared this message, that I, I can and should be praying a lot more about our preaching and for you that God's word would be doing its work in our hearts. The prayer in view in this passage is pointedly prayer for the ministry of the word. That's what makes sense in the context here. It's not... Uh, downplaying the importance of prayer about other matters. But here, what they're devoting themselves to is the work of the ministry of preaching and teaching and prayer about that work. So I want to encourage you, we need you to be praying for us and with us. Please pray for your pastors. We recognize that we, 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 we must delegate responsibilities that threaten to distract us from our biblical priorities. Planting this church surely required an extended season of hands-on-everything effort, but now we need wisdom and humility not to obstruct its growth. Pray that as we preach uh, and teach, we will do so like this is the ministry at the heart of what we're called to do. Pray that the importance of this task will be clear in our dedication to spirit-empowered preparation in the study and spirit-empowered proclamation here on the platform. Pray for yourselves as we pray for you that you will eagerly and attentively receive teaching like you're being given water for your parched soul, like rich food to nourish you. The fact that we have devoted ourselves to preaching every week should communicate that this is of critical importance and that it's not ignorable. We're not here giving a spiritual equivalent of a TED talk, carefully crafted and genuinely interesting. No, what we're handling is the words of eternal life. 
What we see dramatically depicted in this text is that the life of the church depends on the effective preaching and teaching of the Word of God. For church to be healthy, leaders must take initiative and followers must take ownership. And pastors must prioritize the ministry of the Word of God and prayer. I haven't yet focused on the prerequisites for new leaders given in verse 3. We're going to consider those as we look at those they chose. So let's focus on verses 5 to 6 in the text. When the apostles proposed the solution for how the church could organize care in such a way that it, they would not neglect the Greek-speaking widows, the church responded enthusiastically and they put forward seven candidates. Apart from two, we hear nothing more of the other five in the rest of the story of Acts. Luke highlights Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. It's as if he stands head and shoulders above the rest. As Schnabel comments, Stephen's life was visibly influenced by his faith in Jesus and by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Stephen will soon play a very important role uh, in the next part of our story of the early church. That he possessed gifts and grace that went beyond those required for the ministry of care that he was being appointed to will, up, will become apparent also. The second man mentioned is Philip. He too will play a conspicuous role in this story as it unfolds. The others, well, what can we say about them? What's interesting is that all seven of these names are Greek names. Philip is the one name that was common in places like Galilee. But apart from that exception, Luke's original readers would have picked up based on these names that the leaders the church chose likely did not grow up in Judea or Jerusalem, but were Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews who originated in the diaspora. One of them, Nicholas, was a proselyte from Antioch, which means he was actually a Gentile who had officially converted to Judaism before coming to faith in Christ. Daryl Bach notes this. That the problem broke out along ethnic, ethnic lines is not surprising, as most relationships would be affected by these distinctions. It seems that the church intentionally entrusted the responsibility for ensuring the care of Hellenist widows to this group, made up primarily of Hellenist men, likely because they spoke the same language as the widows and may have already known them personally among others in this large church. But there's something much, much more important that we can say about the seven. It's found in verse 3, in the description given, and, and in the description given of Stephen. These were men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom. They stood out among thousands for their proven character. I mean, think of the size of this church. It is at least 8,000 members now, probably a lot more, because th those are only the figures that were given before rapid increase at the start of this chapter. But these men somehow stood out in this community. Wisdom here seems to point to the ability to work with people well and practical skill for the tasks that they'll need to handle. So these seven were godly and gifted men. As the commentator Brian Vickers explains, they must be well-respected and known among the community, show clear evidence of spirit-given faith, and know what needs to be done and how, it, and how to do it. You know how when you look at a job listing, whether in the Sunday paper or on an online job board, they'll include minimum requirements for the candidate? These were the minimum requirements for this important administrative job in the early church. And it's legitimate to generalize for our situation. 
For a church to be healthy, we must choose leaders who are godly and gifted for the task. Think, about, think with me for a few moments about why both of these qualifications are necessary. If we appoint leaders who are godly but unwise, that is, lacking the necessary skills for the task at hand, they'll care for people deeply in their hearts but do a dreadful job at meeting their needs. If we appoint leaders who are gifted but have demonstrable shortcomings as far as godliness goes, they'll eventually and inevitably bring the gospel into disrepute. They'll damage those they serve in church and misrepresent the character of Jesus to the world. They'll aim for excellence but lack faithfulness, long-suffering, patience, kindness, and gentleness. They'll aim to get the job done but fail to love people. In fact, they'll entirely misunderstand what doing well looks like when you're called to serve among God's flock. Now, you, you see this play out publicly quite a bit when it comes to churches and worship leaders. It goes without saying that leading worship requires some musical gifting. But when churches promote the most gifted musicians and singers to be their leaders without paying close attention to their growth in godliness, the disaster plays out behind the scenes, even if it takes a while for it to spill out for everyone to see. Because we love Jesus and love his people, we must choose leaders who are godly and gifted. These verses help us to see another thing about a healthy church. For a church to be healthy, everyone must embrace biblical priorities and participate in choosing leaders. Now we're doing a little bit more synthesis. We already observed that the disciples in this church took ownership of their community. But when verse 5 tells us that the apostles' proposal pleased the whole gathering, it meant that they too embraced the necessity of the priorities that the apostles wanted to protect. They understood that appointing another group of leaders would help to protect the apostles. And they gladly participated in choosing those leaders. Now, the interaction that we see in this text between the apostles and the rest of the disciples is specific and intricate. It's like a dance that's being led by one partner. The apostles proposed the solution and provided criteria for choosing leaders. The people then stepped forward and made seven unanimous choices. The apostles then appointed these men, praying for them and laying on hands on them to commission them for the task and to communicate to everyone that these were the new leaders whom they approved of. This kind of interplay is healthy, and it's what we want to see as we look to add leaders here in our local church. Now, before studying this passage extensively, I used to think that the seven were the first church deacons. But as Bach explains, this is probably not the origin of the office of deacon. This title is never used of this group, nor is there evidence that these men do all the things that deacons did. However, the principle of designating a set of laborers for this kind of task is probably what led to the, the creation of this office at a later time. The early church in Jerusalem was unique in so many ways, and we're going to watch it change significantly in very short order. But the seeds for the later development of the office of deacons seem to have been sown here. This passage, by the way, is one of the places from which we derive our theology and practice of churches that are elder-led and governed, which invite congregational participation in decision-making. In our local church, we're definitely at the stage now where we need to be looking to appoint leaders, including deacons. Our benevolence work here is not extensive or frequent, but I've found it burdensome to take the lead in trying to serve the needs of our members and others connected to the community. 
So we need somebody to hand that over to, probably a, better yet, a, a team of people. And that's just one case in point. The bigger point is we need you members to participate in identifying godly and gifted leaders as needs arise. So please don't sit back and think, well, we have three pastors, so they got this. We need you to identify needs and tell us about them. And as we lead, we need you to help us to identify those who can best take on particular tasks. Built into all of this, I want you to recognize, is a call to pursue greater godliness. To pursue godliness is to fit ourselves for service. If we love Jesus, we want to serve his people. So we've looked at our three episodes. A complaint arose, the solution proposed, and those they chose. Now, very, very briefly, let's consider the epilogue, continued growth. So look again at verse 7 with me. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is one of several summaries that Luke provides at points in this book. They are literary transitions which highlight the growth of the gospel and the prospering of the church. It's notable here that he points out that many priests became obedient to the faith. I mean, based on what we read in chapters 4 and 5, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the opposition to Christianity among the Jewish leaders was unanimous. But the power of the gospel was breaking into the halls of power of Judaism. Even those at the heart of the Jewish religious system with its old covenant regulations and sacrifices were turning to obey Jesus and what faith in him required. Here's what we can see at a human level in the placement of this summary. The health and growth of the church depends on maintaining biblical priorities and caring for people. The health and growth of the church depends on maintaining biblical priorities and caring for people. That's, that pulls together a lot of the truths we've been seeing in this passage. But the way Luke speaks, his passive construction highlighting the agency of the Word of God itself, uh, at, rather than the work of the apostles, helps us to see another level here. God is the one who causes the church to grow through his word. God is the one who causes the church to grow through his word. He's the one to whom we pray and the one on whom we depend as we seek to lead and care for his church with priorities that reflect his heart for his people. Members, this is your family. We, as your pa we, we, we are your pastors, but at the same time, we are, you are our brothers and sisters. Your joyful ownership of this family will play a big role in our health and growth. We need to hear both your encouragement and your concerns. You are positioned to spot things uh, and to see where things are breaking down, where we're failing to care for each other well as a local church. As you recognize and make us aware of important needs, it serves us for you to do so as those who appreciate and embrace the priorities that we are called to protect as pastors. We want to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of this word. I think one of our applications as pastors after this message needs to be just to discuss and assess how we're doing at that, you know, continuing to do that. But that's our heart, to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. So please hold us to these priorities when you see us with our hands on too many things. God causes the church to grow numerical and in maturity through the gospel as it is preached and taught. Please continue to offer your help, even though it takes us a while to receive it sometimes. As we walk with each other, please continue to encourage each other in, in, in growth in godliness. 
Continue to pursue the fullness of the Spirit and growth in your faith. We are eager to see many of you grow into those who can be godly leaders. We're already seeing that in so many of you, and I hope that you are seeing it in each other. As our church grows, we must protect biblical priorities by deploying godly leaders to meet growing needs. May God give us grace to respond wisely to changing needs. May he raise up leaders among us who are gifted and godly to serve in various capacities. May we treasure and prioritize the word of God, even as his word shapes how we love one another. And may God cause this local church to grow and cause many to become obedient to the faith around us through our connections with family, with neighbors, with co-workers and friends. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.